So I was having kind of a bad day a couple weeks back. I've had a few bad days since, maybe you have too. When I'm low, when I'm on my own, when I'm alone, I go into a, a kind of depression hibernation mode. I mope around my apartment. I eat comfort foods that I know are not going to give me the energy that I need. I resist stuff like sunlight and fresh air, anything that might help to bring me back to life. And the psalmist actually describes this situation quite well. He described it several thousand years ago. The psalmist says, the cords of death entangled me, the grip of the grave took hold of me. I came to grief and sorrow. Check, check, and check. We, we think that the psalmist is probably describing like a deadly illness or being surrounded by your enemies in a battle situation. Those are typically the situations in which the phrase, the cords of death entangled me, are used in the Hebrew Bible. I've never been in battle, at least not the kind of battle that the psalmist is talking about, but I recognize the feeling that he is describing, and maybe you do too. When I feel caught in a trap of darkness, when I feel like there's no way out, when the grip of the grave takes hold of me, when the cords of death curl their tendrils around my limbs and trap me in a feeling of despair. So I was on, I was on the phone with my parents on this particular afternoon. They had called to chat about some other stuff. And I was kind of putting on a game face, right? I was trying to keep up my end of the conversation, probably not doing it particularly well. What my parents didn't know, because I didn't tell them, was that I was talking from my bed in my pajamas at two o'clock in the afternoon, and I had not moved all day except to walk into the kitchen to grab a box of Cheez-Its. So I don't tend to respond to people who give me unsolicited advice, especially when I'm at a low ebb. There is still a kind of petulant, pouty little boy inside my head who likes to stamp his foot and say, you're not the boss of me, whenever somebody tries to give me a little bit of well-meaning direction. But my mom could tell, I think, that I was at a low ebb. And even though we don't live under the same roof and she can't physically drag me out of bed like she could when I was a kid, she did the next best thing. I heard it in her voice, actually. She went into mom mode. I don't know where you parents learn this. I would love to know this lesson, but you all, you all somehow know how to do this, how to like get the parent into your voice. And apparently, it doesn't matter how old your kid gets, you can still do this thing. So my mom basically ordered me out of the house. She doesn't give like direct commandments very often, but I've learned to pay attention when she does. <laughs> she uses that card sparingly, and it's very effective. She made me promise when we got off the phone to get up and go outside for a walk. She said, you'll feel better. Your body needs to move. And I said, the governor says I'm not supposed to leave my apartment unless it's an emergency. And she said, this is an emergency. Wear a mask. So I grumbled. And I mumbled, and I kind of complained under my voice, but by golly, when we got off the phone, I got up, and I strapped on a pair of sneakers, and I started walking. The psalmist says, how shall I repay the Lord? How shall I repay God for all the good things God has done for me? The second half of this psalm that we chanted this morning, Psalm 116, it's a series of promises. It's a series of, of vows, right? This is how I will return to normal life, the psalmist says, from the other side of the death and despair from which I have been rescued. Because the psalmist knows, right? It's not enough just to go back to normal, right? The psalmist says, I need somehow to create a new normal, something that more accurately reflects where I've been and what has happened to me? So the psalmist says, I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of God's people. I will offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of my God. I will walk in the presence of the Lord in the land of the living. I will walk. 
I will walk in the presence of the Lord in the land of the living. That verse suddenly makes so much more sense to me than it ever has. Not in any like super spiritual metaphorical sense, right? Although the psalmist means it both ways, right? I will walk in Hebrew has a double connotation. It means both I'm going to put one foot in front of the other, but also it means like this is the way I'm going to live. This is my discipline. This is my pattern. This is my life. For me, this psalm is like a literal reminder. I don't know why it's so hard for me to remember, but when the stakes are like highest and when dangers are most threatening, it's the simplest stuff that makes the biggest difference. Like listen to your mother. Go outside, take a walk for heaven's sake. It's not rocket science, right? When the grip of the grave grabs a hold of you, the way to shake it off is not fancy, and it's not like Christianity invented it. You just learn how to re-engage your body again. So this Sunday is like walking Sunday, if you like. I don't know if the reason that this psalm gets paired with this Road to Emmaus story in Luke is because of the refrain about walking, But these two guys know something, right? Before they even get to recognizing the risen one in the breaking of bread in that room, that inn in Emmaus, the the text says the disciples are going for a walk. There's two of them. There's Cleopas, and there's this other one who never gets a name. The gospel writers love anonymous disciples. Our texts are full of other Marys and other disciples, the disciple whom Jesus loved. One theory about why why the writers do this is that this is actually how ancient writers invited their readers into the text, invited them to take on a role in the story. So whenever you see an unnamed character in a biblical story, the theory goes, that's you, right? That's where you are. That's the role you're invited to play in this story. So you and Cleopas are walking together from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Nobody knows where Emmaus is. Luke says it's seven miles from Jerusalem city center. So that's like, you know, that's a good afternoon's walk and you're pretty depressed, right? You're upset. When you meet this stranger who starts asking you questions, the text says, they stood still looking sad. That's an anemic translation, actually, of what Luke says. Literally, Luke says, they stood still with a gloomy eye, which I think is far more evocative. You're on a walk with your friend, and you are going with a gloomy eye. The cords of death have grabbed a hold of you. The grip of the grave has entangled you. You are mired in grief and sorrow. So the stranger starts asking questions. And they ask him, are you like the only guy in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on? He hasn't heard the rumors. He wants to know what they're talking about. They say, how can you not know? The town is abuzz with this stuff. Stories about crucified zombies coming back to life. Rumors that the authorities are going to start a crackdown. These two don't know whom or what to believe. They're terrified. They're confused. And yet in the middle of their gloomy eyes, there's this little, like, whisper. There's this little glimmer of hope. They tell the stranger, some of our friends, some women in our group, are reporting to have had some pretty weird encounters with angels and empty tombs. And we don't know if they're crazy. We don't know whether or not to believe them. All of this is unprecedented. None of this comes out of the scripts that we know. And yet you hear in their voice this little bit of, like, dare we say it? Like, a little bit of hope, a little bit of excitement. The women say they saw an angel or a vision of an angel. The angel said he's alive. Dare we hope that we might have an experience like they did? Dare we hope that we might see something that will rock our world? Dare we hope? That's their question, right? Underneath all the gloomy-eyed stuff. Dare we hope? Because hope is a dangerous thing, right? Too much of it 
and you end up completely disconnected from reality, too little of it, and you live your life as a kind of perpetual Eeyore, finding all of the dark clouds in every silver lining. It's a dangerous drug, actually. It's a, it's a chemical thing. Your brain, when, you, when the mechanisms of hope set in, your brain starts funneling endorphins and encaphalins. I had to look that word up. I'm very proud of it. Encaphalins. Encaphalins are not unlike morphine, right? They're a drug. They block pain. They might accelerate healing, actually. There's a lot of medical interest in the brain chemistry of hope because we think it might actually be like a life-saving mechanism. But we're playing with fire when we're playing around with hope, right? Hope is a little bit like falling in love, right? It's, I mean, the brain chemistry is great while it lasts, but there's a reason that we say love is blind, right? It blocks out a lot, and hope is like that. Hope is a mechanism that allows the human brain to be manipulated and controlled. It, can numb us to reality. It's why more than a few philosophers and theologians are actually kind of suspicious of hope. There's a, a conservative political theorist, Roger Scruton, who wrote a book in praise of pessimism. He says that the unscrupulous optimist is about the most dangerous thing in the world. On the other side of the political divide, there's a, a liberal theologian, a liberation theologian, Miguel de la Torre, who says, hope is a middle-class privilege. It soothes the conscience of those who know themselves to be complicit in oppressive structures. As Emily Dickinson famously said, hope may be the thing with feathers that perches on the soul and sings a tune without the words that never stops at all. That tune that hope sings is a siren song, right? It has the power to drown out a lot of other voices. And sometimes those are the very voices that we most need to pay attention to. So hope's dangerous. And we've got these two disciples, Cleopas and you, Cleopas and me, walking along with our gloomy eye, they meet this stranger, they get into a scriptural debate with him, which is always a bad idea, especially when you're debating Jesus, and they're pretty wary of hope. They're nobody's fool, right? They've been taken to the cleaners before. Charismatic Messiah figures have come and gone, politicians and teachers and life coaches who seem to have all the answers, but the spotlight fades, right? The underbelly is always revealed. And meantime, you know, life goes on. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. The kingdom of God feels like this distant dream. And there are mouths to be fed and diapers to be changed and bills to be paid. And the idea that their dead friend Jesus might just pop out of the sky and start talking to them is a fantasy that these two guarded and pragmatic optimists, walkers, can ill afford. So they know one thing, right? They know one thing only which is the lesson my mama taught me. When life gives you lemons, go for a walk. When you don't know which way to turn, when you're caught in your own head, pulled into your own cycles of anxiety and fear and depression, when the grip of the grave grabs a hold of you, strap on a pair of sneaks and hit the pavement. Right? This, is, this is spiritual advice. It's not just an exercise tip. If scripture is to be believed, God does not always meet God's people when they're standing still, twiddling their thumbs, waiting for the miracle to drop out of the sky. God meets us en route. God meets us on the road, in the middle of our grief, in the midst of our pain, somewhere between point A and point B, right? These guys are not in Jerusalem. They're not yet in Emmaus. They're somewhere in between. They're in between death and the miracle. So if Jesus is not the destination, right, maybe Jesus is like the way you get there. There's a reason that he calls himself, like over and over in scripture, I am the way, I am the route, the pilgrimage, the door, I am the journey. There's really no such thing in this tradition as a journey to Jesus. There's only Jesus who is himself the journey. That's where he meets them. He meets them on the road. He stays with them for dinner, which is a very nice thing. 
but he doesn't stay very long because as soon as they recognize them as soon as they recognize him he vanishes and all they're left with is this I mean memory, but the way they describe it is like as a weirdly physical sensation. It's like spiritual heartburn. They say, were not our hearts burning within us while he was walking on the road with us? He keeps us on our toes, this hide-and-seek savior of ours. It's a, it's a frustrating way to live a spiritual life, right? You're always on the move. You're always kind of looking around the bend, peeking around a corner. But what it does, I think, this discipline of looking for Jesus on the road, is that it forces me to re-engage the world around me in a way that otherwise I probably wouldn't. I find myself looking a little bit more closely at everybody I'm passing. You know, first of all, I'm making sure they're keeping an appropriate social distance. But then I watch to see what I can learn or what I can imagine about what might be going on for them. I mean, how many, like, Cleopases, how many anonymous friends, how many saviors might I meet out there on the road these days? And if I'm lucky enough to find a, a stretch of pavement where it's just me, I mean, even then, there's so much to engage me, right? If I'm going to find Jesus, I, I learn to pay attention to the, the way the sky looks today, the slant of the light, what trees are in bloom, where that great smell is coming from. I learn how to train my attention so that I can filter out all of these angry, distracting, doubtful voices, the grip of the grave that is always waiting to grab a hold of me. I learn how to focus instead on my breath, and on the rhythm of my feet, on the sensation of sneaker rubber hitting pavement, on breath meeting air. All of this to say, when I walk, I learn how to be a body again. I learn how to let my animal instincts take over. I remember to, to notice what I notice. It's why walking works so well, I think, when I, when I choose to engage it, not as mindless exercise, but actually as what the psalmist calls the way, the journey, the road, the walk. Jesus says, that's who I am. The psalmist says, this is how I fulfill my vows, right? This is, this is the mechanism by which I lift up the cup of salvation. This is what it means to offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Everything that God asks of me is fulfilled in this simplest of ways. I will walk in the presence of the Lord in the land of the living. Amen.